0: Ask and pray. in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Thank you, brother. Glad to be with you all. Happy for this opportunity. Can this go higher? This is as high as it goes? Okay. All right. <clears throat> um, the screen says. I'll be going through verse 22, but Brian was right to stop at verse 17. That was a last-minute audible that I made um, to try and stay within the, uh, the time limit that Brian tries to aim for and, and that I try and aim for in my church as well. Um, this passage, as you heard Brian read it, teaches us about time and eternity. And you can see that's the big idea. i just quickly glancing through it. I want you to look again. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then the next seven verses repeatedly tell us there's a time for this and that and this and that. And then the end of verse 17 sounds the same refrain that we just heard in verse 1. Verse 17 says, there is a time for every matter and every work. And in the middle of the chapter, says more about time, also speaks of eternity. Did you see that? Verse 11 it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also He has put eternity into man's heart. And then a few verses later in verse 14, I perceived whatever God does endures forever. And the word there is, is the same Uh, word in the Hebrew actually translated eternity in verse 11. So, again, talking about eternity, time and eternity, time, 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 eternity. What's the purpose of all this talk about these things? Well, in the broader context of this book, what Solomon is doing, he's the one who wrote this book under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's teaching us we must think well and often about time and eternity if we want to live well in the present time that God is giving us. And and what would that look like, for you to live well in the present time that God is giving you? Well, actually, the end of the last chapter tells us that, the end of chapter 2. I'll I'll just summarize it. King Solomon says there, there, there's nothing better for man than this, to eat and drink and find enjoyment in your toil. And God will bless those who please Him. So so that's the vision of chapter 2. Instead of wasting your life, striving after the wind, striving for more to enjoy tomorrow, just enjoy the everyday gifts of God today and make it your ambition to please God today. Now that vision of the good life as good as life can be here under the sun that that Solomon commends at the end of chapter 2. Solomon keeps riding that same horse right on into chapter 3. He's telling us this is the way we should live. So again, you heard Brian read that in in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 3. Look at that again, the end of chapter 2, all over again. Verse 12, I perceived there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Verse 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And then a verse that he didn't read uh, that I cut, verse 22, the end of this chapter, it comes up again. So I saw there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. Okay, so see, Solomon is still trying to get us to live this way. That's the point of all this talk about time and eternity. You won't live this better way without these truths. You won't walk in just contentment and thankfulness and godliness with respect to the present moment and what you have today unless your mind is renewed by these truths about time and eternity. And this chapter, I think, can boil down to three big truths about those topics. This chapter teaches us about the seasons God appoints in time, the beauty God sees above time, and the justice that God brings after time. Is that behind me right now? There it is. So understanding these things can rescue you from striving after the wind and, and wasting your life following the course of this world. These truths enable you to walk in wisdom and joy and faithfulness in whatever season and time God may appoint for you now. So now we'll start walking through this passage. Look at the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 3 again. Here's our first main point, the seasons God appoints in time. The seasons God appoints in time. Verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So, there are two time words in this verse. The first one, season. Uh, You you may have an English translation of the Bible that that says, appointed time here. To everything there is an appointed time. And then the second word, which uh, my ESV simply has as time, is actually used twice later in Ecclesiastes, translated as proper time. So, I think these modifiers, appointed and proper or appropriate… They help us understand what this verse is saying. For everything there is an appointed time and an appropriate time. So, everything has its appointed time, meaning that our God is sovereign over all times and seasons. Whatever comes to pass under heaven comes by divine appointment. And everything has its appropriate time. Uh, The various circumstances that God ordains for us, they they call for various responses and attitudes that that are appropriate for those particular times. So, it's just not always a suitable time for laughs and hugs and peace. Not in a fallen world that's shot through with sin and, and which is subject to suffering and death and full of all kinds of frustrations and futility. And and so we as Christians need to be careful that we don't develop an overly simplistic understanding of what a godly life looks like as if all times and seasons are the same. Because they're not. The way of wisdom and the way of pleasing God considers what is appropriate at this present time, given whatever God has appointed to be happening in it. Okay, so, so the next several verses flesh this out in detail, this idea that's generally stated in verse 1. So, follow along again. I'm going to read starting in verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Because we live in a fallen world. Now the wisest man who ever lived, not King Solomon, uh, someone greater than Solomon came, Jesus Christ. He is the perfect model of this, as as always. Sometimes Jesus gathered to Himself, and sometimes He sent away. Sometimes He mourned, sometimes He feasted. Sometimes He healed, sometimes He didn't. Sometimes He spoke, sometimes He kept silent. He loved, He was also moved by a holy hatred at times. Hebrews 1 says about Jesus, Quoting Psalm 45, you loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9 says, that He will establish a kingdom of peace, and of the increase of peace in that kingdom there will be no end. But the Bible also says that when Jesus comes again in Revelation 19. He will come from heaven like a victorious warrior riding a white horse, and in righteousness He will judge and make war. The crowds in Mark 7, they they didn't know how right they were when they said, Jesus does all things well. When the Son of God became a man to live like us, He even experienced a God-appointed time to be born and to die. Galatians 4, which Brian read at the beginning of the service. When the fullness of time came, God sent His Son to be born of a woman. And several times in the Gospels, Jesus speaks about the hour of His death as being a particular appointed time. You'll hear this in the Gospel of John as you go through it. He says, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then just before the Passover, when He was crucified, Scripture says Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And then after He died for our sins, He rose again for our justification, but not until the appropriate time. He took his own life up again on the third day and not a day sooner and not a day later because that was according to the Scriptures that he would be raised. I mean, this is one of the astonishing and beautiful things about the life of Jesus, that he always lived perfectly in step with the times and the seasons God appointed for him. He always did what pleased the Father. And that is why we need so much for His righteousness to be counted to us. Because we don't do that. We haven't done that. There are many times we don't even know how to do that. right? What what even would be appropriate in this time? We so lack wisdom on top of lacking the righteousness that we need. Have you ever thought, I don't know if I should laugh or cry right now, Is this a time to embrace or exclude? Right? For, for mercy or tough love? Is this a time to keep seeking or, or to give up and move on? Is this the time to keep tending or to scrap it and start over? To speak or not to speak? It, is this the time I should answer the fool according to his folly? Or is this the time I should not answer the fool according to his folly? Is this the time I I should comfort by speaking the truths of the gospel? Or is this the time I should comfort by not speaking? And just weeping with those who weep. Should I pray for God to heal this brother? Or or pray God would take him home? Right? Is it okay for me to dance right now? Is it okay for me to cry right now? Is it okay for me not to? These are the things that we feel like we need wisdom for, and these are the kinds of things that Ecclesiastes is, is, is telling you, yes, you need wisdom. And how can we know what is proper, what is pleasing to God in each appointed time? Now th- this passage doesn't spell out the specifics, and that's not the point. You you can't create some kind of giant flow chart of everything that could possibly happen to you in life that you could trace out and say, oh, okay, it's a a time for laughing. All it tells us is that there are different appropriate times that that accord with different appointed seasons. And really, just knowing that and believing that deeply is a great head start to living wisely and well. It helps us know that we should not hear Ecclesiastes' vision of the good life, enjoy the everyday gifts of God, eat and drink and and rejoice in your toil. We should not hear that in in a reductionistic way that we think all of life is supposed to be enjoyed in one mode, just lighthearted happiness and simple pleasures. That's not what he's saying. So, as you seek to receive God's good gifts today with with thankfulness and contentment and a heart to please Him, and you seek to find joy in those things, that doesn't mean that you should try to be ignorant or cold-hearted about the true hardships around you. And it doesn't mean you need to uh, force a fake smile about your own true hardships. Thus says the word, there is a time to mourn and weep and lose and cast away and war and die. And the same for the people you know and love around you. And if you're going to care for them well, you need to know that there is a time under heaven for all of these things in their life too. So enjoy the everyday gifts of God but not in a way that's glib about the frustrations and sufferings that fill this vain life under the sun. And yet, on the other hand, this is the way of biblical wisdom. There's very frequently a, and yet, on the other hand. These verses show us that, that the better way Solomon commends to us, finding joy in present gifts... That doesn't just apply when everything is cheery, but in all times and seasons, okay, in times of dancing and laughter, you are, we're still to fear God in all things. And in times of weeping and mourning, we are still to find joy in everything God is giving in the present, and especially to find joy in pleasing Him, in His good pleasure. Okay, how can you grow in your understanding of what is proper and pleasing to God in any given appointed time. Let me let me give you a few things. For one, commit to reading the whole Bible regularly. The Bible's a big book. And one reason is because life is not simple. So it's full of wisdom and commandments and telling us things we should rejoice over and weep in, things we should love and hate. Times we should speak and not. And you need the whole counsel of God to live wisely under every time that might be appointed under heaven. Also, uh, there will still, though, be times in life where where you feel like various biblical principles do pertain, but they're pulling you in somewhat different directions. And, And for that, you need what the Bible calls wisdom. How do you get that? Well, one, you have close relationships with with other Christians who are themselves wise and growing in wisdom, and and seek their counsel. Also, Scripture would say you should pray and ask for wisdom in the name of Christ and believe that God will give it to you because Christ has made God your Father. Ask God also to make you more like Christ in in your heart. The more you become like Christ, just generally, the more your heart is grounded in Christ like love of God and true love of brother and earnest love of neighbor, the more you'll, you'll just know what's wise and proper in any given season because of the kind of person that God is making you to be a person who's like Christ, who has the mind that was in Christ Jesus. And, and really, to bring the matter back, also to the to the message here of ecclesiastes you're most likely to know what is appropriate and pleasing to god in any given time and season if you're trying to live like solomon told you you should in the verses right before this and in the verses that come after this if if you're making it your highest aim to please god in the present if you're aiming just to enjoy what god is giving you in the present then you are primed and ready to understand what might be proper in the present in the time and season you're in. And, And I'll say this, the opposite heart disposition that's set on striving after more, more earthly gain, more earthly importance, that will make it very hard to live in step with the season God has appointed for you in the present. I mean, you'll just... You'll be consumed with envy over things that you don't have. You'll be anxious about things that you can't keep. You'll be upset about things you can't control or fully understand. And, and we're not made to fully understand the times and the seasons that God appoints for us. We're certainly not made to control them. Isn't that clear in verses 2 through 8? How many of these times come to us because of things that are well beyond our ability to control, a lot of them. You must submit your heart to God's sovereignty and say by faith, my times are appointed times. I I take content what He has sent, and you'll live wisely. And you'll do things at the appropriate time the more you can learn to view your times as appointed by His wise hand. Now, uh, the next verse, verse 9, it begins a new section. After teaching us about the seasons God appoints in time, now the Spirit speaks about the beauty God sees above time. The beauty God sees above time. And that's especially in verse 11. But but first, Solomon kind of hits reset on the flow of thought, and he repeats some big ideas that have come before in chapters 1 and 2. So, see that in verse 9 with me as I read it again. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now... These are kind of open-ended statements. But, but I think that, that's because he's just repeating them in an open-ended way because you're supposed, to have, you're supposed to be remembering chapters 1 and 2 and remember what he said about these things when he just um, utters this phrase. The question in verse 9, that was answered back in chapter 2, verse 11. What, does, what gain has the worker from his toil? 2.11 says, I considered all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. (laughs) In, In about verse 10 here, the business that God busies man with, well, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, it is an unhappy business or a grievous task God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. So why does Solomon repeat these things? He's saying, right, we pass through all these different times and seasons. and, And what do we gain for passing through all these times on earth? No earthly gain that we can take with us when we die when this short life is over, and, and, and we gain, through these times, no lasting relief on earth in future seasons that we'll pass through on earth. No, no lasting relief from grief and toil. And, and so at this point in Ecclesiastes, we, we might actually set, expect If you're thinking about chapters 1 and 2, we might expect Solomon to say something like that again in the next breath, verse 11. But he doesn't. Instead, surprisingly, I think, and wonderfully, definitely, he says in verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time, So, so everything you experience through all these seasons, even though it nets you no lasting earthly gain and no lasting earthly relief, still God is doing something beautiful in all of those times and seasons. Isn't isn't that an incredible truth? God has made everything beautiful in its time. And a lot of times we're just listed. Every time listed in verses two through eight, God intends it for beauty. Ultimately, He is bringing beauty from from tears and loss and hatred and war and death. Everything, verse 11 said. It's hard for us to see beauty in those things. And that's because we can't see what God sees. And the end of verse 11 affirms that. Man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So, if you could find that out, if you could see what God is doing, not only in the present time, but how that fits into what He's done from the beginning to the end, then you know what you would say about the present time? You would say, that is so beautiful, what God is doing. Because you'd see how He is setting His glory on display, and Scripture calls that the perfection of beauty. God exists outside of time. He he stands over time. It's hard for us to think about that that He always sees every time and season like one present now to Him. Everything God has done from beginning to end is always in His present purview. And so God the Spirit can say, God has made everything beautiful in its time. again we're not able to to stand above time to see the beauty of all god's work but but you can understand and trust that this is true and you can long to see it because even though you and i are confined to these times in our perspective god did give us an an inbuilt inner sense that there is something beyond these times to look forward to or to dread. But something beyond these times, the middle of verse 11 is where I'm getting that. It says, He has put eternity into our hearts. C.S. Lewis famously said in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, most people, if they really learned to look into their own hearts they'd know they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. And there are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they can never quite keep their promise. So he said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, and so we were. God God has put eternity in our hearts, yet not such that we can find out what God has done from beginning to end, the rest of verse 11 says. Uh, We can't see by the light of eternity right now. We, We can't see the beauty God's working in each time. What do we do? We trust in the God who can see it. If he says that it's so, that it is so. And we can long to see it. We should. And I think that the fact that the word beautiful is used here should stir that longing to see it. It doesn't just say God has made everything good in his time. He made everything beautiful. And beauty is meant to be beheld. It's meant to be seen. It's it's meant for the pleasure that's experienced in seeing it. That's beauty. So I think this verse would teach us not just to trust that God is doing wonderful things in the present that we can't see, but we should also earnestly desire to see the beauty of it for ourselves. And that helps us to long for Christ to return and and to know Him in a face-to-face way and, and to see the end. You know, when we see the end, we we still won't see everything God sees and knows, but God will help us see in the light of eternity enough to help us connect dots from some of the beginning to the end of what God did, and we'll see how this time and season fit together with that time and season which affected the good that came about in this other time and season. And when we see how all that God appointed relates to each other in in perfect proportion, we'll be witnessing what's called beauty. We'll see enough to see all God appointed was always appropriate and that He did indeed accomplish what is beautiful and best. Ultimately, the, the, the highest display of His glory possible on earth, and that for the highest joy possible of His people in Him. Now, what about when you are doubting the beauty of what God might be doing in a certain season of your life? Because it's really dark and hard. Well, you should look again to Christ. Consider this. We can't see by the full light of eternity yet, but this world has already seen the, the first great ray of eternal light or the first light of eternal life breaking into this world, and that was when Jesus rose from the dead to start the new creation He rose to an indestructible, eternal life. After what? When he lived under the sun like us, he experienced these hard times and seasons. He suffered. He wept. He knew loss. He was hated. He was killed. He died bearing our sins in his body, bearing the curse of God against our sin that hangs over all creation. But then he rose... And, and when he did, right away, wasn't it so clear that everything Christ had endured by God's appointment, God was working something beautiful all along? It was clear when he rose to eternal life. And, and even the marks of his terrible death on a cross, the holes in his hands, they, they were made beautiful. Beautiful. They were still visible when He came out of the tomb. That hymn that we sing, uh, rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. But, But now they're part of His glorious resurrection body. Friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's not just the supreme example of this truth that God makes everything beautiful. In its time, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the reason why everything will be made beautiful in its time. Because He died for our sins to redeem us, to free the whole creation from the curse, and so everything could work together for the good of those who are His and end up in a place where everything is bright and beautiful and all of time worked to that end. So, you can live the way that Solomon says is wise with contentment and joy under God's sovereign hand in every season as you trust this, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And when you think I want to trust that, but how can I hang on to that trust in the midst, the midst of such a time as this? You need to look in faith again and again at the resurrection of our Lord. The risen Christ is the proof and the reason that this is true. It makes everything beautiful in its time. Well, if we trust, if we trust this, God is accomplishing eternal beauty in every temporary season, though we can't see it. Right? That Solomon wants us to, to remind us again from this angle, well, well, if that's true, then how should we live now in the meantime? Verse 12, here it comes again, I perceived there is nothing better for them than, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. That is, that is just what is fitting for a person who's longing for eternity. That's what's right. That's the way you should live if you're trusting that God makes everything beautiful in its time. That, that enables you to be joyful and do good in the present time. To enjoy the everyday gifts of God in the present time. Your food, your drink, your your daily toil and everything. Because everything about this time is something God is bringing beauty out of. Even if I won't know it until I see it in eternal life. So, so you don't need to despair about how this season of your life is not like the previous one. If only I could get back there. And and you don't need to discontentedly strive after some potential future season that's not like the present one. If only I could get there. You can just enjoy whatever there is to enjoy in this present season with thankfulness toward the God who's Sovereign over this time because he appointed it and it's part of his larger, beautiful work. And he is doing good in it. And God isn't revealing to you today what he's doing from beginning to end. But you know what God is doing today that this verse says? He's giving to us the gifts of God. Food, drink, work. The gifts he gave to man in the Garden of Eden, in fact. And, and many other good things, and He's giving His children pleasure in their toil, especially as they pursue pleasing Him in it. This, this better way to live, described in chapter 2, ver- verses 12 and 13. This is a beautiful way to live, and <clears throat> uh, chapter 5 <laughs> actually calls it that. The ESV translates it, uh, says, this is good and fitting to eat and drink and so on. But the word fitting, it, it's the same Hebrew word. It's beautiful in 311. This is the beautiful way to live. Contented enjoyment and present gifts, aiming to please God in the present, is beautiful because that's the appropriate way to live for someone who trusts that God has made everything beautiful in its time. There, there's nothing better. Be joyful. Do good as long as you live. Whatever time or season you're in, find joy inside each season please god inside each season enjoy his gifts to you that are specific to this season be faithful with the opportunities for good works that god has appointed to you that are specific to this season and and all the while remember that god sees what you can't the end from the beginning and you trust Christian, if you are a Christian, you trust that for you in Christ, it is beautiful. In the end, you'll see it. Now, the next verse, it gives us even more fuel for living this way. Content, thankful, joyful, godly, properly in step with the present time and season. It gives more fuel for that by speaking further about the eternal work of God which should be our present hope in in every season. So, look at verse 14 now. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever or endures to eternity. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. Now, again, if, if You have Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 in your mind. You should be jolted by this verse that this description of God's work is a complete opposite of how the book describes our earthly work. Our works are never complete. They often don't go as planned. They certainly don't endure forever. They provide no lasting gain. Every earthly thing that our toil gains for us is is taken from us at death after these few days of our short lives pass by, but God lives forever. And His work is forever. And His work always accomplishes eternal gain. What God does lasts. And the verse said, everything He does is like this. Whatever God does endures forever. And I love the next part. Whatever He does, th- this work is perfect. There's nothing that can be added to God's work because He always fulfills and finishes every purpose of his. And there's nothing that can be taken away from his work because then he wouldn't fulfill and finish every purpose of his. His work is perfect. I mean, what an anchor this is for your soul that, that, that the beauty that God is working in every time and season, it will last forever. Everything God does endures forever. It will be perfectly fulfilled. Nothing could add to it or take away from it. That is such an encouragement to, to be joyful and do good. Eternal good is going to come for a certain season. And so you can just be content and faithful in whatever he's giving you now. Now, this this stark contrast between God's work and ours that this verse points out, that also should make us stand in great awe of God and feel very small and incapable in comparison with Him. And it should make us think, wow, this is the one I want to please. And it should make us think, wow, this is one I do not want to be at enmity with. Or, as the end of verse 14 put it, because of this, people should fear God before Him." This is the first time the fear of the Lord has come up in Ecclesiastes. Uh, It won't be the last. In fact, the fear of the Lord is the last word of the book, the final two verses, 12, 13, and 14, wrap up the wisdom of the whole book like this, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God. Keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil." So when verse 14 of chapter 3 says that that God's eternal perfect work, that, that that should result in people fearing Him. That gets us leaning toward this truth that that God is the one who is our supreme judge to to whom we will give an account for what we did with the time that He appointed to us. And and that's exactly where chapter 3 goes next. Verse 17 says it directly, God will judge. And this is the last truth about time and eternity in today's passage. We've seen the seasons God appoints in time and the beauty that God sees above time. Now we see the justice God brings after time, the justice God brings after time. Look at verse 15 now, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been and God seeks what has been driven away." So here again, Solomon is folding in truth from earlier in the book back in, into the present argument. Uh, chapter 1 verse 9, he said something very much like the first part of this verse, but there to, to say there, there's nothing new under the sun. But here, the, the basic point is, is, is put to further use than that. But, but, but first, he just reaffirms that. He says, what's happening now what will happen in the future is really just like the stuff that happened before. Not, nothing's all that new as far as human nature and, and human experience is concerned. But then he adds to that, God seeks what's been driven away. Or, or God seeks what has passed by. And so the idea is even though the past repeats itself in the presence, innocent innocence, And in the future that that doesn't mean that what happened in the past is lost on god and just because what's happening now already has been that that doesn't mean what's happening now isn't going to be carefully judged by god on its own on its own right because it is god is seeking what has been driven away in the context of this verse god is seeking what has already been God God will chase down the past, is what it's saying, to bring it back before Him, not just to, to repeat some aspects of it again in time, which He does as a God of order and beauty would, but God chases down the past to bring it back before Him for the sake of bringing every deed that's ever been done into judgment. And and to make that point clearer, some English Bible translations uh, render, the end of verse 15, God will call the past to account. That was a dramatic bang, it worked perfectly. Now this this should give great motivation to do what verse 12 said again, to, to focus on doing good in the present season. Because every time and season that passes by that's chased away, God will chase down and go get and bring back the records of all the deeds done in it when He judges all at the end of time. And you need to know this truth, not, not only to help you live a godly life in the present, but also to help you to live a joyful life in the present, as Solomon would have you And it's because we see around us a lot of really troubling stuff that makes us really distressed and depressed as as we think this isn't being fixed. This isn't being addressed. This is getting worse. The bad guy is getting away with it and coming out ahead. So, look at verse 16. Solomon wrestles with this. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in Even in the place of justice, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Even in those people and institutions on earth that should model and reward justice and righteousness, there's many times wickedness in them too. Even in in the justice system. It sometimes perpetrates evil, or at least it doesn't punish evil like it should. And the same can be said even about some congregations in courts of churches. And that's difficult to take in. It it can be very discouraging. And so we need to remind ourselves the true justice of God that He's promised to bring at the end of time. You, You need to learn to say that to yourself, to your own heart. Like Solomon did. See that in verse 17. Verse 17, I said in my heart, this is what I told myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. That's how he responded to witnessing wickedness in the supposed place of justice and righteousness under the sun. He said to his soul, soul, you remember this, God will judge. And that's the truth that can free your heart to live joyfully in the present time many times it is when god judges the righteous and the wicked every past deed that is when that is when we will be able to see and say everything is beautiful if he did not judge that would not be so Now, finally, the the, the second half of verse 17, the last words we'll look at, Solomon tied this truth about God's final justice to the larger theme of chapter 3. The rest of verse 17 says, for there is a time for every matter and for every work echoes verse 1. But here we see that includes the time when God's work of judgment will take place. All the times that that God appoints under heaven are driving towards this climax of the times which is also appointed, the time when God will judge. It will happen at the most appropriate time. It, It will happen at the time that is best suited for the accomplishment of all of God's beautiful purposes from beginning to the end. And the Bible says about Judgment Day that both the judge and the day has already been appointed. Acts 17, 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. Jesus, God's only begotten Son. God will judge the wicked and the righteous by Christ, the Righteous One, who will judge in righteousness. Now, perhaps some of you are feeling this, shouldn't this news about the righteous judgment make us not free to live in joy in the present, but but actually compelled to live in dread through every time and season? If if all these times are leading to the time of the judgment, and Scripture says about us, none are righteous, no not one. So if this righteous judgment is coming after our times, how, how do we find sober-minded judgment, uh, sober-minded joy in the times leading up to it? And the answer is we find it in trusting the gospel of grace. So, the good news about this resurrected man that God has appointed to judge the world, he was righteous, 100%, but he died like the most wicked of men because God laid on him the wickedness of us all. At the cross, what happened? God chased down the records of all the sins that had been done and all the sins that would be done by all the people that Christ was going to save. And he brought all of those charges into the present moment of the cross. And he charged them against his son in this one moment. And then God poured out his righteous judgment that we deserve for those sins on him. That was his hour. That he was marching toward his whole life. He died. He was buried. Three days later, he rose to prove that that what happened on the cross was actual full payment for all of those sins. And his resurrection was a declaration once for all that he was fully righteous. He didn't need to stay in the grave like a sinner. He was righteous. He he was justified, declared righteous when he rose. And, And this is the good news, that his cross work can count for you and his righteousness can count for you. And the declaration that he is righteous forever when he rose from the dead, that declaration can be declared of you. All of God's free gift of grace. You only need to confess your sins with sorrow toward God and and turn from them in your heart. And then rely on this death, on this resurrection, on this righteousness as that which saves you from sin and judgment all the way. And His life and death, and resurrection, and the spirit that He gives to those who trust in Him, it it liberates you to be able to live in a way that really does please God, that God will reward on judgment day. Not because your good works are perfect, but because the blood of Christ even washes away the stains of your good works. So Jesus, by, by grace, Will count them as good on Judgment Day, and reward you if you're in Christ and His righteousness is yours. Th- then this truth about the justice of God that is, is bringing after time that's something that can enable you to rejoice in every season and to find joy in every gift that He gives. Because you know God is not just going to make everything beautiful; He's going to make everything right. In the light of eternity, we'll see how God brings beauty and justice from every time and season just like He's done it in the life and resurrection of Christ, and He'll, he'll do it all in Christ for His glory. Lord, thank You for these things. Uh, what anchors for our souls they are, these truths about time and eternity and the gospel. God, We praise You. You are the perfection of beauty. And the gospel that saves us, that you've given us, is beautiful. And your son is beautiful. And we bless his name. God, help us to to live wisely, well, joyfully, in well-doing, for the glory of Christ who saved us. In Jesus' name, amen.